Welcome to the Heartbeat Church Podcast. Our vision is for people to live in the image God intended them to be in. For more information visit heartbeatchurch.org.au Proverbs chapter 14 verse 30 states, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Rot is a powerful symbol of death. If a house's foundations have rotted through, you know that house is finished. If you see your fruit and vegetables beginning to rot in the kitchen, you know it's time to throw them out. If your teeth and gums start to decay, if they start to rot away, you know it is time to visit the dentist. And with rot, there is a chance, there is an opportunity you can Prevent it when it first begins. Detected early enough, tooth decay and gum gum decay can be overcome. But if you leave it too long, rot is inevitable. It leads to death. And this is what Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30 is stating. Envy rots the bones. The very being of a human is destroyed when envy takes hold. The framework that holds us up, our very bones themselves disintegrate as envy takes root. Now, while Proverbs 14 verse 30 is probably not talking about a literal rotting of bones that leads to some form of osteoporosis, the metaphor is powerful. You let envy take over your life. You cease to be human, for your bones will collapse. You are left as a pile of just rubbish on the floor, like a house whose foundations are rotted, like fruit and vegetable that has decayed. Rot leads to death. Envy, likewise, leads to death of people. And envy was the second on Pope Gregory's list of seven deadly sins. Now, of envy, Gregory wrote, The envious are to be admonished, that is, rebuked. How great is their blindness, who fail by other men's advancement and pine, or suffer away at other men's rejoicing. How great is their unhappiness, who are made worse by the bettering, the improving of their neighbour, and in beholding the increase of another's prosperity, are easily vexed or angered within themselves, and die the plague of their own heart. What can be more unhappy than these, who, when touched by the sight of happiness, are made more wicked by the pain of seeing it. Aristotle divine envy simply as pain at the sight of another's good fortune. At its core, envy reveals our self-worth, for it's measured by what we see others achieving. And at a deeper foundation, it reveals our relationship with God. Many of us know that Psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or another way of phrase it, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. 
And when you feel envy over another's success, deep down what you are saying is, the Lord has not provided me enough, for I do not have what my neighbour has. And the danger of envy is increased within our modern world. When King Solomon penned that proverb thousands of years ago, comparatively, it was a society where you were exposed to very few people. You may have lived in a little village where you may have only had 50 people around you. But now with the advent of social media, we have access to celebrities, photographers, film, film people, directors, and regular people. All of their lives are on display for us to see at the touch of a button in our pocket. And in our deeply vain and deeply insecure society. What people present on social media, in the words of psychologist Ethan Cross, is photoshopped lives. People only present an image of a seemingly perfect life. Even that random snap of someone walking down the beach, it has been edited, it has been cropped before it is uploaded to a feed. And psychologists now are witnessing more than ever. People are presenting for therapy because of their deep-seated envy over what they see on other people's feet. As they constantly scroll through and see the endless photos of people on holidays, people getting job promotions, their perfectly sculpted body, academic achievements, babies, charitable deeds, etc., etc., and so forth. People are becoming more and more envious. On numerous occasions, the great psychologist Jordan Peterson has warned, the more you use Facebook, the more depressed you get. Now, while Christianity is not unique in its condemnation of envy, of envy since most religions and worldviews recognise its impact what is their solution? One psychologist suggested that we merely just delete social media, that we actually somehow kind of embrace our envy, that perhaps we just learn to live with our envy, that we use our envy to fuel our improvement and, by extension, society. In the film Enemy at the Gates, in the final scenes, Commissioner Donilove says to the sniper Vasily. Moments before his death, I have been such a fool, Vasily. Man will always be man. There is no new man. We tried so hard to create a society that was equal, where there'd be nothing to envy your neighbour. But there's always something to envy. A smile, a friendship, something you don't have and want to appropriate. In this world, even a Soviet one, there will always be rich and poor, rich in gifts, poor in gifts, rich in love, poor in love. It's a powerful scene. Even in communist Russia, the character there is recognising that there is envy in a supposedly equal society. You cannot change that foundation of man to be envious. Now, Pope Gregory's solution to envy was to adopt the virtue of kindness. 
And Thomas Aquinas, expanding on Gregory's teaching, stated, um, Charity rejoices in our neighbour's good, while envy grieves over it. Envy is like a hidden predator that is seeking to devour us, is seeking to rot our bones. And one of the most recognisable biblical accounts of envy comes from Genesis 4, the story of Cain killing Abel. Gregory argued, unless Cain had envied and accepted the sacrifice of his brother, he would never come to taking away his life. As we read through this account, not only do we see the rotting of Cain's bones, but we see how his rottingness expanded to include his brother, and by extension, the wider world around him, as sin took over and creates a spiral of destruction. I read here from Genesis chapter 4, from verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of Yahweh, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to Yahweh. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Yahweh looked with favour on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry. And his face was downcast. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were out in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then Yahweh said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Yahweh said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer. On the earth, Cain said to Yahweh, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But Yahweh said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then Yahweh put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from Yahweh's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Genesis 4 begins after the eviction of Adam and Eve from the garden space. And as part of that curse in Genesis 3 upon humanity, there is this, there is this hint that there will be this ongoing battle between the seed of the serpent, Satan, and the seed of the woman, who will eventually crush the serpent's head, but not before he bites the heel of the woman's seed. 
but also is part of life outside of the Garden of Eden. It's characterized by painful childbirth. And so when Eve falls pregnant and she gives birth to Cain, Eve's declaration is that Yahweh's hand has helped her endure this hardship. Cain's name, or Cainin in Hebrew, literally means a formed being to get, to create. That's That's what the term means. And it's related to Eve's expression that Yahweh has brought forth Kantani. With Yahweh's help, Eve has brought a son, Cain. Now, due to our over-familiarity with this narrative, we know that Cain is the bad guy already. But let's pretend we've never heard this account and we're reading it for the first time. We, we have to understand the significance of Cain's birth. In the ancient Near East, the firstborn son was the most precious son. He was the superior one. He was the one to inherit double the portion and was given greater honour. Cain's name is praise to Yahweh for giving forth this son in a world where childbirth is painful. By his birth, Cain represents a bright future. For with this child comes a promise of more children, of to be fruitful and multiply. And perhaps, perhaps this child Cain will be the one to crush the serpent's head. And we're told later on, Eve has another son and his name is Abel. Now, with Cain's birth, we're given an explanation to why he is called Cain. But with Abel, there is none. Abel's name in Hebrew is Chabel, which literally means a mist, a breath, a vapor. Now, in Hebrew, there is two words for breath. One of them is nesh or ma which is breath that means breath that gives life, such as God breathing on Adam in the garden to illuminate his body. But as we noted, chabel is the second meaning of breath. It refers to the transience, the fleetingness of life. So Abel's name represents the fragility of humanity. And in a way, it foreshadows his death. Cain, the firstborn, he has the greatest honour. He has the greater inheritance. And he is part of this promise. And now we have a second son, Chabel, Abel, who in the eyes of Adam and Eve doesn't equate to very much. Otherwise, you wouldn't name your son this terrible name. But despite his parents' favoritism, it's unclear in the narrative, because remember, we've never heard this story before. It's the first time we're reading it. It's unclear which brother is actually favoured by God. And there's a very, very clever way that the narrative does it. It's with the brother's names. So in verse 1, we're told Eve bore Cain, then Abel. In verse 2, we're told Abel was a shepherd 
and Cain work the ground. In verse 3, Cain brings an offering of fruit, and then Abel brings an offering of fruit. Now, what's significant about flipping the order of the brothers' pairing is that it presents the narrative as neutral. At this point, God does not have a favourite. His parents might have a favourite, but God doesn't. Now, we already know Cain, as the elders, is naturally regarded as the greater brother. But who is the brother that will receive divine blessing? Now, with the next pairing, the expectation, it will be Abel first, and then Cain second. Now, in verses 4 to 5, it says that Yahweh looked favorably on Abel's offering, but did not look favorably on Cain's offering. The pattern continues, Cain, Abel, Abel, Cain, Cain, Abel, Abel, Cain. But now we're told God looks favorably on Abel. And Abel's recognition presents this precedent of God favoring the younger son over the elders. Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Joseph and Judah over Reuben, David over his seven brothers. And what's even more interesting in this account is that Abel is a shepherd. And in the ancient world, shepherds were considered a lowly profession. And we see this ultimately representing King David. He is the eighth son of Jesse, and he's also a shepherd, the bottom of the bottom, with a very lowly profession. But Cain, Cain has the same vocation as his dad. He is a gardener. He works the soil. And gardeners in the ancient world were a royal and priestly role. Human beings may have been called to rule and subdue both the plants and animals. So both brothers are fulfilling this role. But originally a gardener had greater honour, greater status. Cain is more highly favoured than Abel. And when the brothers bring their offerings before Yahweh, Cain brings an offering of some fruits, while Abel brings an offering of fat portions from some of his firstborn flock. Now the text is very, very clear to emphasise. Abel selected his finest parts the firstborn of his flock. Cain is utterly indifferent. It's ironic that the secondborn brings the firstborn of his flock, while the firstborn does not bring any first fruits. See, Cain assumed that with his firstborn status, that would be enough to receive blessing from Yahweh. What the text is saying is that his status is not enough to overcome his sin. And Cain's negative response to Yahweh's reaction to his offering indicates his inner motives were wrong from the beginning. For he's not just simply angry, he is very angry and his face was downcast. 
However, despite his sin in giving this offering, Yahweh assures him the rejection of his offering, it's not life-ending. Cain can be accepted if he does something more important, if he can overcome the beast-like sin that is crouching at his door. Cain's offering was marred with his sin and wrong motives, but now something even worse is lurking within Cain. Cain has the opportunity to be restored, to be given a place of honour in the eyes of Yahweh if he can rule over the sin that seeks to overcome him. Some commentators have noted this reference to sin crouching at the door. It alludes to an ancient Near Eastern demon that would apparently stand in the doorways and pounce upon people. And this illusion is quite interesting because the Jewish book, which you can find in the Apocrypha of some Bibles called Wisdom, states in Wisdom 2.24, by the envy of the devil, death entered the world, and they who are allied with him experience it. Now this demon imagery correlates with the conflict that rages throughout the Bible, the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. Now, remember, initially, we probably assumed that Cain, because we've never read this story before, that Cain would be the one to crush the serpent's head. But regardless of whether or not Yahweh is referring to a demon or is just a, a powerful metaphor for sin, the point is, is his furious, murderous Envy is lurking, seeking to take him over. And what is Cain going to do about it? Will he overcome it and be restored to the position of honour? Or will he let it consuming? Will he let that rot destroy his bones? And as we know, the answer is clearly no. Cain lures Abel out to the field and kills him. Now, in the Hebrew, we are told that Cain rises up and kills Abel. Now, how do people rise up? Normally, they're crouched down and have to get up. Yahweh has warned Cain about the dangers of the sin crouching at his door, ready to strike. And at that moment when he murders his brother, Cain becomes embodiment of that sin lurking when he kills his brother. Yahweh asks Cain, why is his face so downcast? Sadly, the only time that Cain raises his head is to murder his brother. Cain followed in the footsteps of of his father, Adam. While Adam only tried to seize the fruit from the tree, Cain goes up one more and he seizes the life of his brother. In a, very, in a pattern similar to the interrogation of his parents after their sin, Yahweh rhetorically asks Cain, where is your brother Abel? 
And while Adam at least admitted his sin, perhaps rather reluctantly, Cain does not admit anything and actually seeks to absolve himself and turns back the interrogation back to Yahweh and asks him, well, am I my brother's keeper? And Cain is implying, well, no, I should not be responsible for what my brother is doing. But Scripture points out, yes, Cain is his brother's keeper. He is responsible for the well-being of his family and his community around him. And as a murderer, he has failed in this task. And Yahweh says, what have you done? How could you do such a terrible thing? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And this word for crying, it's the same expressions for those crying out for help, for those crying out who are about to be killed, for those crying out who are oppressed. Abel remained silent throughout this narrative except for his blood that defiles the land and cries out for justice. And that blood that is crying out, it is the cry of what unchecked envy does, not only to the person who is envious, but to those around them. And because the ground which humans are derived from has been defiled, Cain, who works the ground, he will no longer be fruitful and will spend the rest of his life as a restless wanderer. Now, the commentators suspect initially Adam and Eve were evicted from the garden. They probably lived their lives at the foot of the mountain that Eden was located on, where the land was fertile. But as Cain is pushed further east, it's to the land where it's to land which is not arable, when he will have to live his life surviving by hunting and gathering. And Cain bemoans the severity of his punishment. And while he declares, and it's in our English Bibles, my punishment is more than I can bear, it actually has two meanings in the Hebrew. Cain is also saying, my iniquity is too great to be forgiven. Cain is admitting his punishment is too harsh and he deserves no forgiveness. Ironically, Cain is terrified of the people who will kill him. Most likely members of Abel's family, his children or grandchildren or some form of of relative. But despite his sin, God miraculous or God graciously gives Cain some grace. And he gives Cain this mysterious mark of protection. Just as Adam and Eve wore animal skins for their brave new world they had to face. So as Cain goes out further east, he bears this mysterious mark to protect him as his life as a restless wanderer. And the impact of Cain's envy, it's seen as the world progressively spiral. As Cain leaves Yahweh's presence, he's meant to be a wanderer. But instead, was Cain head east, further from God's presence, he defiantly builds a city called Enoch, named after his son. 
And Enoch, the city, becomes a place, a hive of scum and villainy. And it represents the fallenness of humanity. As humans drift further and further away from God, the worse things become. Cain murdered his brother out of envy seven generations later. Cain's descendant, Lamech, will exacerbate Cain's sin, not only by marrying two women, but by murdering a man for merely striking him and then arrogantly boasting, well, if Cain had sevenfold vengeance of protection, I have 77-fold. And that is the trajectory of the serpent seed. The city of Enoch is built on injustice, violence, and sexual immorality. In the city of Enoch, we see how quickly the serpent has sowed discord in the world. And the irony is all of this could have been avoided if Cain was willing to rule over the sin crouching at his door. The murderous envy that ruled his heart. The truth is all of us experience envy in some form or another. And when we are faced with a situation, whether it's scrolling through social media on our phone, whether it's talking to a friend or seeing someone that has something we do not face, we too must face God's challenge to Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. Rule over it. And it's in those moments of feeling envy, of feeling like we are somehow missing out or unworthy, what we can do is, if you want something high, if you want to accomplish more honour that is worthy in God's eyes, greater than any riches, greater than any educational experience, greater than any job promotion, then rule over the envious sin that threatens to overwhelm you. Rule over the envious sin that threatens to rot your bones. For if you let envy take hold, it will transform you into the embodiment of sin and rot you from the inside out. Whilst Pope Gregory argued that the antidote to envy was to adopt the virtue of kindness, which is a very noble goal, Rebecca de Young suggests something even more profound. We all need to accept a different foundation of self-worth. Envy thrives on perceived self-value. It's fueled by a need to be better than your competitors. But for Christians, our self-value is derived not in the things that we possess, our beauty, our status, our education, etc. It's derived from being made in the image of God and transformed by his Holy Spirit. Thus, when we feel envious, and all of us will at some point, we can admit, yes, Lord. There are people smarter, funnier, more talented, more popular, more successful than I, but my self-worth, my self-value is derived in being made in your image. And at this moment, I will exhibit my self-value by ruling over the envy that seeks to devour my bones. De Young argues that a spiritual problem needs a spiritual 
solution. The core values of our life is the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. The core values of our life should be we are precious and honoured in God's sight and he loves us. And friends, that should be enough. In our moments of envy, we can turn it into a situation of praise by overcoming the sin crouching at our door. Abel's life is a tragedy. It is chabel. It is cut short. He has no life, but it is not wasted. His blood that is spilt speaks more than words, for it does illustrate the consequences of envy, but also shows the cost that favour with God may entail. The blood of Abel that cries out for justice points to the greatest son whose blood was shed. And as his blood was shed and poured upon the ground, it was that blood that overcomes the chabel, the shortness of life. It was that blood that brings justice to this world. And it was that blood that removes the curse of the ground. And while not the younger son, Jesus, as the Son of God, follows in the Old Testament pattern of the youngest or the most unexpected son of being blessed. But ironically, Jesus Christ fulfills both Cain and Abel as his life and ministries embodies both their roles. Jesus is the firstborn, but unlike Cain, he did overcome the serpent. Jesus, unlike Cain, is the true gardener and he brings Eden back for he gives all of us access to the tree of life and he has removed that curse of the ground. Jesus is Abel, the rejected son, the shepherd who cares for his flock, who did not merely give away his firstborn and its fat, but gave up his own life. And since Jesus has accomplished this task of the greater Cain and the greater Abel, it's a demonstration of his great love for us. Abel may have been rejected by his parents, murdered by his brother, but not by God. It's the same with us. Jesus gives us meaning and purpose in our lives, even when we feel that everybody else is greater than us, even when we feel that beastly rottenness of envy creeping into our bones. For with Jesus' offering, he grants us true life, life over death. He grants us true meaning, true justice, and true blessings. Pope Gregory argued that kindness overcomes envy and the kindness we experience is an overflow of Christ's love for us. So regardless of how successful or how unsuccessful we are, regardless of our intelligence, beauty, popularity or status, we should no longer hold on to envy for we have found a self-worth, a value, a love where we never need to feel threatened or inferior again. And once we understand this great love God has for us, then we can truly have a heart at peace.
and experience life and reverse the rot that envy has in our lives. Thank you for listening to the Heartbeat Church Podcast. For more information about services, ministries and sermons visit heartbeatchurch.org.au.